It's, it's wonderful, actually, sitting here and, and listening to your talk, because, it, I mean, yours is, is the most impersonated voice in, in the business, isn't it? Oh, yeah, everyone Everybody does. I, I can do it. Can you do it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello, my name is Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> I need, well, I'm finished yet. Yeah. I'm not finished yet. Not many people know that. <laughs> Welcome to High Brow and Low Brow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Pond and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this episode, we celebrate the eclectic career of Sir Michael Caine with two lesser-known gems from his body of work. Steve's pick is The Wilby Conspiracy, in which Caine teams up with Sidney Poitier to fight the racist system of apartheid. Dan's choice is the black comedy A Shock to the System, in which Caine murders his way to the top in order to take revenge on the system that denied him promotion. Brace yourself for film analysis and some dodgy Cockney accents. And as always, dear listener, beware spoilers. Enjoy the show. Well, good evening, dear listener, and thank you for joining us once again. We've reached a certain milestone, or some might say millstone, in our podcast, because tonight is a Michael Caine special. Yes, indeed. Sir Morris Micklewhite, we celebrate his works with two films you may or may not be aware of. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they memorable? Are they not? Who knows? Anyway, Steve. Thank you, Dan. My pick for this special Michael Caine episode is the 1975 thriller, The Wilby Conspiracy. I say thriller, it's actually a multi-genre film. It's part adventure, part road movie, part chase movie, bit of romance, part buddy-buddy movie. And it's also a political thriller which makes some serious points about the fight for racial equality. The Will Be Conspiracy is set in South Africa. The opening scene is a courtroom where Sidney Poitier is a black nationalist leader and he's on trial. His defence barrister is a beautiful blonde woman played by Prunella Gee, and her boyfriend is watching it in the audience hall, wherever you wish to sit. The spectators sit in the courtroom. Her boyfriend is played by Michael Caine. She's actually a married woman. The relationship is adulterous. She's at the tail end of a marriage, and the husband character comes in a bit later, but I'll save that for later. Anyway, we see a glimpse of the brutal police system and justice system of apartheid South Africa and how it brutalised the black population. But unexpectedly, all of the charges against Sidney Poitier are dropped. And immediately it kind of sets off alarm bells for you thinking, mm, there must be something a bit more to this. The prosecution withdraws its case. I'm going to call all the characters by their actors' names. It might be a bit easier to remember them. So Michael Caine, Sidney Poitier and Brunella Gee go out to plan to celebrate. And no sooner have they left the courtroom than the car is stopped and some policemen who are unaware of what's just taken place in the courtroom start to try and humiliate Sidney Poitier and, you know, drag him out and you know, put handcuffs on him and just be very unpleasant because he hasn't got his identity papers on him which is just really bad luck because you know he's only just got out of jail uh, where he's been housed throughout the duration of the trial that never was and he hasn't had time to get his identity papers back anyway michael kane kind of flips out when he sees how poitier is being treated a fight ensues poitier and michael kane beat up to south african policemen which is pretty serious they get away in the car Prunaliki is driving, she's like, this is really serious now, we've got to get you out of the country because Michael Caine is a British national, so he might have some sliver of protection, but uh, Poitier 
probably be killed for beating up a white policeman. They hit the road and they've got some like 900 miles to drive and they're being chased. Then the arch villain or antagonist of the piece is introduced. He's a South African Bureau of State Security policeman stroke spy played by the wonderful actor nicole williamson and he's furious because it, it was through his power that the charges against portier were dropped because he wanted to see where portier would lead him i.e portier is the vice chairman of the black nationalist movement nicole williamson wants him to be released and, and lead him to the chairman of that same movement so he decides well they're not going quite the way we expected, but we're still going to follow them. We're going to track them. The chase is actually quite interesting because we know Poitier and Kane are being chased. We know they're in mortal danger, but their pursuer is someone who doesn't want them dead, at least not yet. What follows then is a series of part misadventures, part twists. Poitier needs to find some diamonds, which he hopes to fund the Black Nationalist movement. So Poitier visits an Indian dentist who's been a friend of the Black Nationalist movement. At that point, uh, Nicole Williamson, as the pursuer, breaks into the dentist's office and Poitier and an attractive young Indian woman hide in this secret compartment. It's kind of like a, a closet. And they have a very steamy encounter while the police are looking outside. So they've got to retrieve these diamonds. They decide to do it. And then there's a brilliant set piece where it's my favorite set piece of the movie, where Kane, whose profession before he got involved in all of this kind of madcap chase, is he's an engineer. The diamonds have been hidden in a sinkhole, and it's very dangerous because the sinkhole is only kind of blocked about 70 feet down by rubbish that has gathered there and could give way at any moment, and they have to lower him down. But they create this pulley with a swing. They have to lower him. He's got to retrieve the diamonds. You know anything could go wrong at any moment. And one of the characters who was introduced earlier at that particular point becomes a traitor, basically, and puts them all in hugely mortal danger. And there are a number of great set pieces like that. There's uh, the fact that um, Potter was handcuffed before he beat up the policeman and they have to get away. He's got handcuffs on, he hasn't got any keys. So they break into a metal works and they've got to remove the uh, handcuffs. Obviously it's quite dangerous, you, you know, you're, you're sliding your hands over a, a buzzsaw. And there's a number of great set pieces like that. But there's also great humor because there's one scene, how shall I describe this? Poitier needs to have a call of nature, and because of the handcuffs on, he can't quite adjust his uh, trousers to do that, so Michael Caine has to be of some assistance. The point is, at first, is that they don't really like each other, although Caine is kind of horrified by white South Africa and white minority rule and, all, and apartheid and all of the horrors that are involved. He came to South Africa to see his girlfriend. He didn't come to get involved in you know, have his life put on the line. So at the start, they're kind of bickering, and it's the usual buddy-buddy movie where they start bickering, and in the end, they have a deep respect for each other because of everything they've been through. And there's shades here of the classic Portier movie, uh, The Defiant Ones. It all leads up to an absolutely fantastic climax. You know, they're on the road, and then they're in the air because Prunelagi calls on the services of her husband, who we already know from her description of him is a bad man. He's a sadist. He's a drug dealer. You know, she's 
better off shot of him. But they just need him because he's a pilot and he and he runs drugs out of the country. They say, well, he could get us out of the country. And they're pursued by South African military jets. And then there's one final twist just when they've got out of the country and this twist concerning the diamonds and everything. And it's just really good. I, I can pick apart a, a lot of things with it. The acting, I think, is superb. Just go through it one by one. Prunella Gee, it was her film debut, and she went on to fairly interesting film career. She was in the unofficial James Bond film, Never Say Never Again, so there's your Bond uh, link. And she was also in Coronation Street, and then she quit acting, and she's now a therapist. Kane, I don't think, that was, ironically, this is a Michael Kane special. I, I think he's got the bit of the thankless role, because he's the one who's angry and shouting and irritable. And he's got that Cockney thing of, you start the sentence calmly, and by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you're shouting and you're angry! Uh, and there's a lot of that, you know, it's very ripe for parody. Whereas Poitier is just wonderful. He's just like so handsome and he's got like natural authority and he's, you know, a fearless campaigner for his country and for racial equality. And you're watching, you think, no wonder this guy, um, you know, quit acting to pursue a career in diplomacy because he comes across as a diplomat. I think the shades perhaps of Nelson Mandela in his performance, but Poitier became America's ambassador to the Bahamas, which is one job I'd really like to have. That's a pretty good job. I must admit, I think waking up every morning, being ambassador to the Bahamas would be pretty nice. Anyway, some of the other performances, the young Rutger Hauer, very early in his career, plays the sadistic husband and the pilot, and, and he's very good. And I want to put a special mention to Nicole Williamson as, as the chief villain in this piece, because Nicole Williamson was one of the most promising actors Britain ever produced, particularly in the 60s. He was he was going to be the next Olivier or the next Gielgud. He was invited to the White House to give a special performance to Richard Nixon, um, his Hamlet on stage, everybody was going to see it, Harold Wilson, uh, Barbara Streisand, but he kind of destroyed himself partly through his temper and partly through his alcoholism, which was a big problem uh, in the theatre and in show business back then. Yeah, he was one of the Hellraisers, like Oliver Reed and Richard Harris and a few others. He partly destroyed himself, but he's on brilliant form here because he is the villain, but you know, they say the villain is the hero of his own story. This guy really believes in apartheid South Africa and he's prepared to fight for it and be cunning and malevolent for it and perform any evil to perpetuate this evil regime. And he's quite compelling. There have been two Nicole Williamson biographies that were published and I, I read both of them. Like Williamson himself, the biographies are kind of slightly obscure because he, he ended his life living well, he, he left Britain and when his career dried up and he lived in Amsterdam for a bit and he lived in Corfu for a bit. And he lived in Amsterdam and he actually hung out with a lot of the actors in this film. A lot of Afrikaner characters were played by Dutch actors like Rutger Hauer and Williamson was on friendly terms with them in the pubs of Amsterdam. But his son, Luke Williamson, would say to him, this was your best performance, Dad. You were brilliant in this movie. You were a terrific villain. Because the villains get all the good lines and they get to ham it up a bit, or in some cases not ham it up a bit, actually take a step back and just be in control and unauthoritative and just very compelling to watch. Like I say, it's got humour, it's got it's, it's kind of sexy in plots. I told you about the closet scenes, kind of sexy, and there's also a, a bath scene where, where Prunelagi and Michael Caine are enjoying a kind of sexy bath, and then the two policemen come in and ruin it, humiliate them, and threaten them. And it, it is quite compelling how it goes from a big tonal shift in that scene. The Indian woman who I mentioned earlier was played by Persis Kambata, who is actually Miss India. 
and another Bond link, she was considered for the role, the lead role uh, in Octopussy, but didn't get that. She she starred in the first Star Trek movie and she had quite an interesting career, but she sadly died young of a heart attack. There's also kind of supporting characters like Patrick Allen and other actors you might recognise just if you, if you love films and particularly love films of that era. So production-wise, it was directed by Ralph Nelson. It was one of his final films, and he'd, he'd done some interesting films like the previous Sidney Poitier film, Lilies of the Field, and the Cary Grant film, uh, Father Goose. He was a fairly competent director, and it's based on a novel by Peter Driscoll, who was an Irish author who, who worked in, in South Africa. I do think it's very good. It didn't get a good release in the United States. It, it got a bad distribution. And that's why I think its reputation didn't have much chance to grow over there. But I'd say a film this early being anti-apartheid, when you think of the big anti-apartheid movement, it really took off in the 1980s when you had the cultural boycott of South Africa and you had the famous uh, Paul Simon concert which I think was in Zimbabwe. So in the 80s, there were a lot of great anti-apartheid films like Cry Freedom and A World Apart, A Dry White Season, that's a good one. So culturally, the, the, the movement didn't reach its peak in the 80s, and this was ahead of its time. And it also shows you the Asian community in, in South Africa, which you don't always see. It was filmed in Kenya. There was no way that the South African government would have consented for a film like this to be made when it was very, very critical of the apartheid regime. When I found it, I'd only vaguely heard of the title and I was really surprised by how good it was. And I, you know, heartily recommend it. It's not perfect. Like I say, some of the bickering, and this happens in a lot of buddy-buddy movies, some of the bickering just, just after a while, you just feel like telling them to shut up, you know, <laughs> it's like being stuck in a car with an old married couple bickering. So it's not perfect, but it does have one great set piece after another, and it makes a serious point amidst the action, and it's very well acted, and I can't think of a better recommendation than that. That's that's a pretty good um, set of qualities the film has, and it's a neglected gem in the career of Michael Caine. So that's my highbrow, or relatively highbrow, choice for this episode, The Will Be Conspiracy. Did you mention Patrick Allen? I didn't mention him by name, but that that's interesting because, uh, yeah, uh, Patrick Allen, when he walks in, you know, he was a square-jawed, beefy kind of actor. Mm-hmm. And he surprised me because he hates the Nicole Williamson character. And you think Patrick Allen would be like massively like a right-wing policeman. But even he says, you know, this system you're defending, it's doomed. It will not survive. Change. But Nicole Williamson is such a fanatic, he, he doesn't see it that way. And even though Patrick Allen only has one scene, he leaves quite the impression. Yeah, I, I like that scene. You see, I know him by his voice because he did the Protect and Survive nuclear bomb awareness videos, you know, for the government during the 80s. You know, his is the one that comes when you hear the, uh, you know, the sound of the siren, you and your family must take cover. So he struck dread into a generation of people in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. And it is on YouTube, Protect and Survive, if you look for it. And I bring this up because today's the day, dear listener, when the UK government tested its nationwide uh, emergency warning system on our mobile phones about three and a half hours ago. So I just thought I'd bring in that rather tenuous link. So I recognised the voice before I saw the face. I thought, oh, was that Patrick Allen? And then, yes, there it was. It was Patrick Allen. So there we are. But that's how I know him more from government public information films of the 80s during the Cold War era. He also appears on the Frankie Goes to Hollywood album, Two Tribes, in that protect and survive role. 
So there you are. Wow. Yeah. I, I know him from stuff like the Wild Geese and the Sea Wolves. Uh, you know, he's always playing military types or sergeant yeah. majors. Or... Well, well, that's that's probably why the government got him to do this um, for <laughs> yeah. you know nuclear war. Maybe the public will obey the voice of somebody who sounds like a sergeant major when we tell you to go and hide in a you know in the cellar. We we hear the siren, and that's what you do. You don't go. Hmm, have I got time to go to the shops to get a pint of milk? We seem to be on it. You know. <laughs> so, Dan, do you think the film deserves its obscurity or do you think it's a neglected gem? I, I enjoyed it. Once it's kind of started, it never really let up. And I thought the central character is very much in the Steve Biko Nelson Mandela frame of revolutionary. It is obviously having a pop at apartheid and showing how corrupt and awful the regime was. To give it a quick context warning, um, obviously some of the language used was offensive at the time and remains so. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the derogatory descriptions of the black population um, yeah. were in use at the time and, you know, it remained so for quite some time, but were never, uh, in my mind, acceptable. So just, if, dear listener, if you're coming to this, just be aware of there is a fair bit of um, racial derogatory language used in it, but in context, because that's what the regime was like. I thought it was powerful how they showed like the daily humiliations in terms of, you know, you're a black man, you're walking down the street to say to go to work or, or whatever, or, or go back to your family after work. And then suddenly you're stopped by the police and you're thrown against a wall and, you know, just humiliated and, and degraded. Yeah. It was just it, unpleasant to watch, but I think important, especially as the regime was still alive then. They still make uh, anti-apartheid films that show you what it was like, and, you, and we can be grateful that, that this time has, has long gone, but it was brave of them at the time. Well, I suppose it needed to be shown. If you're showing a story, you need to, in, in as brutal a way as possible, show people what it, why these conspiracies were taking place and why people were resorting to such means. So I, I did enjoy it. Um, it was very much a Sydney Poitier movie, I thought, rather than a Michael Caine one. He acquits himself well in it, and I was quite pleased to see a rather young Rutger Hauer. Again, you know, it was an interesting film to see some of these characters. Your favourite, Nicole Williamson. Is he one of your favourite actors, by the way? He is, yeah. I, um, I'd i always known the name, because if you're a man and you're called Nicole, it's it's quite distinctive. And I'd, I'd seen Excalibur and stuff, because he only made about 20 films. He was mostly on stage and, and also some TV. And then one summer, I... I made a point i read the two biographies and i made a point of sitting down and watching as many of the films i could find and i just thought he was just fantastic and like i say there's an element of tragedy to it in that he could have been guinness or redgrave or or olivier but he was just self-destructive although he didn't die as a consequence of the booze i suppose in the same way that oliver reed did you know which is you know dead of a heart attack at 60 he contracted throat cancer in his 70s but by then he was already hadn't made a film in 10 or 15 years and the last few films he made, the quality had really dipped and he was making them more and more sporadically. The, the biographies are brilliant. Uh, I think one of them was called Beware of the Actor. His temper was terrible. There's one story there. He flew to the States to take a part in a film and he's picked up in the airport by in a limousine by a chauffeur. But something the chauffeur said set him and he's like, turn the car around, we're going back to the airport right now, I'm not making this film. So to say the least, he was very temperamental. When you do that, you know, you're hacking off producers, you're hacking off casting directors and, and they won't cast you again. And, and that's what happened. That's why I like films like this. Although most theatre shows these days are recorded, but they end up being locked away in some vault somewhere or the director's personal collection. They're not seen very often unless they're broadcast in cinemas as well, live. 
obviously theatre is a tangible thing that passes, whereas film, it's, it's always a document. So films like this, we have a document of his performances. And the fact that his son himself, Luke Williams, has said, that was your best performance, I think makes this one really special. Where would you say it ranks, though, in the Kane League table? Probably upper mid-table, I guess. I think you make the point that it's more of Poitiers' movie. I mean, I suppose it depends what your tastes are, but I think, you know, you, your top ones are going to be Zulu, Ip Chris File, Alfie, Get Carter, Educating Rita. And I'm trying to think of a later one. As, he's good as a villain, so Get Carter's kind of the villain, even though he's the main antagonist, but also Mona Lisa, I think he's oh, a yeah. good villain in that. Well, you can't get more company than Michael Caine and Bob Hoskins in the same movie, <laughs> now can you? Yeah. Yeah, apparently that came about because Michael Caine watched The Long Good Friday and said, I would have killed for that role. Maybe he would have been too good in that role. Maybe The Long Good Friday needed a younger actor. If they'd have cast Caine, they would have thought, oh, it's just get Carter again. Bob Hoskins was still relatively new on the scene. There so, would have uh, been a lot of shouting for him to do in that role. He would have kind of gone from his and his trademark staccato shouting towards the end yeah. in The Long Good Friday. I'm not even going to attempt an impersonation of him, to be honest with you. There's so many bad ones of them about I'm not going to try but one of the things about Zulu is, you know, my dad used to say, but he always says it in a, in a received pronunciation accent, don't you point those bloody spears at me? And I thought, wouldn't it be far more powerful if he'd, you know, done this usual, don't you point those bloody spears at me? Yeah. Anyway, my Michael Caine choice is the 1990 film A Shock to the System. So it's described as a black comedy. It's based on a 1984 novel of the same name by Simon Brett. Now, Simon Brett is known for producing early episodes of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on the radio. He's also produced The Burkus Way, Comedy Panel Games. I'm sorry, I haven't got through in just a minute. And he's written radio adaptations of Lord Peter Whimsey. Oh, and he also did the rather excellent After Henry, which I do recommend you listen to on Radio 4 Extra or online view, like a good radio drama about a mother and daughter dealing with the death of their husband and father. This is based on a novel of his, and it stars Michael Caine as Graham Marshall. And he's an executive in an advertising company, and he's passed over for promotion in favour of an obnoxious younger rival called Bob. His colleague, George, who's taking a voluntary redundancy package from the sound of it, while George sympathises with him, he understands where the company is coming from, whereas Graham doesn't. Now, the film starts with the lights going out in Graham's home because his wife, Leslie, has this... Um, what do they call it? It's not a stair maker. A stair machine. What, what's the name of the thing? Is it, are they called elliptical machines? Or is that uh, something different? That's something different. One of these um, stair exercising machines, the name of which I cannot remember. It's a um, stair climber. The stair climber, thank you. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Leslie's stair climber keeps blowing the fuses. The phrase shock to the system, it's used in a lot of ways. For example, he goes down to flick the fuse switch and manages to temporarily electrocute himself. But he then sees himself, he's like a sorcerer whose power keeps getting taken off him. He has the nagging wife who expects him to get this promotion, is organising a surprise party for him that he knows everything about and is being paid for by his money because it's his checks that keep bouncing at the caterers, not hers. Mother-in-law is just as unsympathetic. So he's surrounded by unsympathetic characters and you do kind of sympathise where he's coming from. On the way home from work one day, a tramp in the subway harasses him for money and they get into physical altercation, which ends up with the tramp um, accidentally getting pushed onto the railway tracks and killed by the subway train. 
and Graham gets away with it. Nobody seems to spot who did it. He notices a tear on his shirt, which he takes off, but then the wife retrieves from the line the laundry basket and says, why are you ditching this perfectly good shirt? And he says, it's torn. And she says, I don't see a tear on it. And that gives him some ideas about how to take revenge on people who have made his life miserable because he realizes he does have it in him. Recalling the faulty wiring in the cellar, he shows Leslie how to flick the switch on the fuse, putting one hand on this metal pipe and the other hand on a dodgy light bulb, thereby creating the perfect circuit. He tampers with somebody's boat and he starts going on a date with his secretary, Stella. He's shown in the company as one of the good guys because Stella has a roommate who needs a job and he gets her a job in the company. In some ways, I suppose he's a nice guy. And what the film is saying is, look what happens to nice guys that get trampled on. I don't want to say too much because it is like a morality tale. It's about a man sticking it to the system. What is the system? It could be the system in his body when he gets electrocuted, the system of which we all work. The title can be interpreted in multiple levels, but it becomes a morality tale. What he's doing is wrong, but the people he's doing it to are some absolutely reprehensible types. So you're almost cheering for them when they get off, really, or you're cheering for him when they get off. And it's more a case of how is he getting away with it? There is a police officer who's on his case and knows something's up but he just can't get the evidence to arrest him. That's Police Lieutenant Laker, who's played by Will Patton. His secretary, Sella, I should point out, is played by Elizabeth McGovern, and Swoozie Kurtz plays his wife, Leslie. He does make mistakes, and you think, OK, this is it, he's going to get caught. But he just somehow seems to keep getting away with it. And it reminds me so much of the talented Mr Ripley, in that the reader or the viewer of the film knows that Ripley's an absolute psychopath, and yet you wonder why the people he encounters don't see it. But then you remember that psychopaths are incredibly charming. So he's obviously winning people over that way. And Graham is just, well, incredibly lucky, I think. His moment has come, and as a sorcerer, he's weaving his magic. And Stella becomes, as he says, his sorcerer's apprentice, because every sorcerer needs an apprentice. Almost like a TV movie, this. It's very low scale. It was filmed on a budget of 10 million. It didn't do well at the box office, only made 3.4 million, partly because it plays like it was made for television. I mean, a bit shorter, and it could have been an episode of something episodic like Tales of the Unexpected, which isn't to say it's a bad film. It's just a very small scale one. And if I'm going to be honest, it's not particularly memorable. That's not to say it's a bad film. There are plenty of bad Michael Caine films to, that you could see, like The Swarm. And one I was considering doing for today was The Hand. But as the point of this podcast is to try and find something to recommend the movie to you. And I, well, I know I give myself a real challenge with that with Xanadu, lest we forget. The Hand is good for all the wrong reasons, really. But the shock to the system is actually, it's never boring. And Caine makes a good narrator as well. He narrates the tale. It's mid-table, Kane, is what I would say. Contrary mid-table, neither excellent, but neither terrible. So it's not The Swarm, but it's not Alfie either. It's not a bad film. It's just he's done more memorable things. And I think it just got lost because he was still making lots of movies at that point. Now, just let me check. That came out in 1990. I just want to see what else Kane was doing in 1990. Because I suspect part of the problems was he probably had something big going on at the time and it probably got swamped. Actually, no. <laughs> well, he'd done Dirty Rotten Scoundrels in 88. Oh, and that's then, good. Yeah. Yes, and then he did Jekyll and Hyde in 1990 as a TV movie, then shot to the system. Then the same year he did Bullseye, uh, which is just one of those ones that is bad. Mind you, the following year he did Noises Off. So he was a busy boy or still yeah. around that time. And I suspect the shock to the system was probably overshadowed by other things he was doing at the time. This is one of the problems whenever you 
bring out a lot of things that people sometimes think, oh, it's another Michael Caine one. But just not to say it's bad, Andrew Clavin adapted the screenplay from Simon Brett's novel. And Andrew, of course, would go on to have a big hit of his own with the book, Don't Say a Word. I love the book. I wasn't so fond of the film because it did away with one of the central conceits of the book. It's a well-adapted screenplay. A few changes to the book. In the book, Graham does get arrested. But ironically, his mother-in-law, who knows he's up to something, she finds something that he's poisoned and drinks it, deliberately killing herself but saying he made her do it. Basically, he gets arrested for a murder that he didn't commit. That twist isn't in the film. I'm just reading the film. They Apparently, they did have three separate endings. One, I think, was the ending of the novel. Another was where Graham gets killed. And then they went with the third one, which I won't say what it is. I enjoyed it, but I will say this, that having watched it, would I watch it again? Probably not. But did I feel I'd watched a terrible Cain movie like, say, The Hand? <laughs> no, I didn't either. The Hand is, I'm just going to touch on The Hand because it was for consideration for this week. It's an early Oliver Stone movie in terms of writing and directing. And it's also an early Stan Winston movie in terms of special effects. Cain acquits himself well in it. And it's well-directed and special effects are quite good for low budget. It's just one of these th stories that has been told better before. So I think if you like The Talented Mr. Ripley, then you're going to get a lot out of a shock to the system. And you might be pleasantly surprised, if not shocked, as to how good it is. It was fun watching it again. What did you make of it, Steve? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I'd seen it years ago and remember thinking, I mean, I'm talking like 20 years ago or so, I'm thinking, oh, that's a, a nice little time filler and didn't no desire to watch it again. But then when you mentioned it, I did watch it. Oddly enough, I was watching it on Canopy, if any of our listeners uh, use that streaming service, and there was some bad dubbing where I feel like they dubbed out some quite strong swearing and put in some kind of lighter swearing. It sounded very odd. But I enjoyed it, and I remember thinking, is there some alternative universe somewhere where a shock to the system was a huge hit, and you and I are doing a podcast about some little-known film called American Psycho? Oh, true. Yes, there are shades of that as well. I think because the shock to the system doesn't satirise 80s corporate culture like American Psycho does, mm -hmm. the deaths aren't quite as grim as no. in American Psycho but there's a certain similarity going on. There is in terms of the projection of the yuppie life, and then you realise it's not quite as perfect as it seems to be. And I also thought some of the clubs around Manhattan, because not only is he kind of shedding himself of the wife of the country house, he's acquiring new things, he gets rid of the country house in Connecticut, and he gets a trendy new apartment in Manhattan, and it's very modernist, and lots of black and white you know kind of sleek but kind of cold like reflecting his personality out and some of those clubs he goes to where he's romancing uh, elizabeth mcgovern are kind of similar to some of the clubs that bateman goes to in american psycho you know kind of manhattan kind of soho type trendy places which are a little bit cold a little bit aloof a little bit too hip reminded me a lot of, of american psycho but I, I i agree for every similarity there's a big difference and one of them is is that bateman is a, is a sadist and his murders reflect that. If anything, Graham becomes the cliche he wants to avoid, has the downtown apartment, is having sex with the secretary and has got the swanky corner office. I suppose it is swapping one life for another. I think because it is a small-scale script in a way, and it is, it's kind of very much a personal thing, and it's shot on a small budget. And yes, I did notice the bad dubbing, and I thought maybe we were watching a TV version of it in the days when they just used to dub the freaking for the F word, was one yes. I thought, oh... Yeah. Uh, and somebody even says to him, no need to use such language. And I thought, 
Free kick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whoa. Wow. Well, steady on, you know. That, that was a shock to the system. So, and I think of the phrase as well, you know, a shock to the system. It doesn't grab you the same way like American Psycho does as a kind of mm. title. It was made by a smaller studio as well. The book wasn't that well known, whereas American Psycho, the book, I think people thought this is unfilmable. And maybe that's why the film was so interesting, because they thought, how can they film this unfilmable book? Whereas there's nothing, I think, in the book that couldn't have made it onto the screen. Ken does a you know a good bit of shouting, but the whole point is his wife just completely ignores him, so he gets really angry with her, and Leslie just doesn't care. So he can shout all he likes, really. And I think that's part of the problem is that nobody's listening to him when he raises his temper. They're just all laughing at him, and then when he does really get angry, he's not an angry killer. He's just quiet. He just meticulously plots and plots and doesn't always get it right and all because really he wants that corner office <laughs> you're listening to this and you're working in a nice office block with a nice corner office what's your workmates they might have their eyes in your office and you might take a long walk off a short plank who knows well i think we both work in a shared office so yeah we better be careful i don't want to get any ideas in my head yeah on uh, the ground floor as well steve so it's not exactly you know it's, yeah. not, it's not exactly glamorous really I know. At least we've only got uh, three floors, including the ground, to uh, climb. So we'll make it eventually. <laughs> you know, Michael Caine was 90 recently, as you'd expect for a 90-year-old. He's, he's got some health problems. He's he's still taking some small roles occasionally. And I was just looking at his filmography, 130 films, roughly. And obviously, you're going to get some stinkers. Another stinker. Have you ever seen this one? I mean, literally a stinker. Blue Ice. Did you ever see that one? No. Oh, it's it's kind of like London gangland and he's a jazz enthusiast, but it's just dreadful. And the irony is, is that for some reason they came up with this title Blue Ice and Blue Ice is what aeroplanes drop when people on aeroplanes use the toilet. It all kind of codulates into this kind of blue ice and which the plane then discharges. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, and there's a reference that they're at the funeral of someone has, has died because this has dropped at them and, and they're like, oh, it's a freaky death. It's like blue ice. But the oh. thing is, <laughs> the film is just so bad that if you're going to have a title like that, it, it's kind of alluding to something that you don't want people to connect to your film, which was pretty bad. Um, that's in his hall of infamy. And he was getting on a bit at that point. And in the film, he's romancing Sean Young. And it's like, oh, oh no. <laughs> Being the kind of um, sugar daddy type. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you're, not, you're selling it. No. <laughs> well, if you like kind of just like the disastrous movies that were just ill conceived from the start, that would be one of them. But you, you know, so many great films, and then you you have these mid-table ones, like I think the ones we've got today. But in, in a sense, these films are kind of better because I mean, we've all seen Get Carter. I'm sure there's a BFI book on it. You've you've seen the documentaries and. Kane has mentioned it in innumerable interviews. And then the same for Alfie and the Ipcris file and Zulu. But it's nice to pull out these ones because it feels like they've been forgotten and you can pull it out and you think, oh, everyone's doing really good work here on a slightly lower budget, perhaps. Plenty of gems tucked away. <laughs> Are there any other kind of forgotten Michael Kane ones that may be less well-known you think people should check out? I'm just having a look here. I do think in terms of television work, you should watch his Jack the Ripper miniseries. I thought he was very good in that. Whether you agree with who they think the Ripper is, I'm not going to say, but I thought it was very good. It's not as gory as, say, like From Hell. It was two episodes on ITV, and I'm 
pretty sure it's available on YouTube. I would recommend that. I'm just having a quick look at his other ones to see if there's anything. Harry Brown, I know it was described as Death Wish for Pensioners, but it is a very good updating of the Death Wish morality tale. And the things he's done with Christopher Nolan, like uh, mm. Inception and Dunkirk, he's not a lead in that, but he always seems to get cast in that interstellar a lot of the films for which he's not the lead but he's the support he's very good in like in the dark knight trilogy i liked him as alfred pennyworth apart from the batman's funeral scene when he's crying oh. his eyes a few cloakers in there and like you mentioned mona lisa he's not the lead in that but he is yeah. a very strong presence in it and He's worth seeing it for that. He did a lot of TV stuff. He was in Mystery Theatre, the BBC Sunday Night Play. I'm sure some of those are well worth checking out. The radio stuff would be available on the Internet Archive, and a lot of the TV stuff will probably be on YouTube. Certainly things like Sunday Night Theatre were always good springboards for uh, what were then up-and-coming actors. So I think it's always worth checking out early performances on those to see where they come from. I would avoid, avoid, avoid the later Harry Palmer films. And when I say later, the ones that were made in, oh, was it the late 90s, early noughties? Yeah, I remember. Unfortunately, it's too late for me to avoid them. I, I watched them because I thought, oh, great. You know, what would Harry Palmer be doing now that the Cold War is over? I thought yeah. they had so much potential and... They were just dreadful, beyond dreadful. They were so kind of straight to video, so cheap. It was just like, if it had been made for TV, it would have been a better budget. Avoid Bullet to Beijing, Midnight in St. Petersburg. <laughs> I think I can remember the titles. I was so traumatised. I was just like, oh, they've destroyed Harry Potter for me. <laughs> <laughs> what have they done? Oh, yeah. well. Well, I, I, I do hope we've done Sir Michael you know, a solid on this one. I think so. Hopefully he's got happy memories of making these two films. Well, thank you, dear listener. We hope you've enjoyed this special Michael Caine episode of Highbrow Lowbrow. Please do check out the two films, The Will Be Conspiracy and A Shock to the System. Perhaps you haven't heard of them. I hope we did them justice. Certainly they are mid-range or pushing towards higher range of Michael Caine's uh, very diverse, long and, for the most part, illustrious career. We'll be back soon with another episode, and we hope to see you then. Goodbye. Do you know, this manor is turning into an open-air lunatic asylum. You wouldn't think so, would you? But that bloke there used to be Simon Sparrow in all them Doctor films. They used to have to sew his pants shut to stop the women goosing him. You wouldn't think so to look at him now, would you? Anyway, I've got a dash. They're reshowing the swarm on Channel 5. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.